Well, when you, when you look at weird Scripture, every once in a while in worship, you're going to get weird stuff. So, at least it treats. That's kind of the way that works, right? So, we, we have this weird stuff. And so, thank you for being a part of this. I hope you've been having as much fun as we have in this weird series where we're looking at some of the weirdest Scripture passages in all of the Old Testament. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some really weird stuff, right? Last week, we talked in church about foreskins and circumcision. And this week, we're talking about human fecal matter. And so, you know, um, last week was probably one of the literal weirdest passages we'll cover, and today's probably one of the hardest. It's, it's really difficult, and so uh, we want to spend a little time there because it doesn't fully make sense when we first read it, and uh, we want to try to do that. So we're in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet. He's what's known as a major prophet. The, there are five major prophets. The only thing that makes a major prophet over a minor prophet is they're longer. They take more time. You may know some of the major prophets, people like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, and of course, uh, even the prophet Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel's fascinating. He's a little different than some of the other prophets. He's writing a little bit later than some of the major prophets. He's writing in the 6th century B.C., before Jesus. Uh, He is actually a priest in addition to a prophet. And so alongside of being a prophet who speaks on behalf of God and speaks forth for God, a priest sort of represents God as well, right? And so part of Ezekiel's life is that he goes off into what's known as the Babylonian exile, the, the captivity that God literally designed and set forth for the Israelite nation because of their sinfulness, because of the error of their ways, and Ezekiel goes off with them into the captivity. And so he's a part of who they are, and he speaks with and for them in addition to speaking to them and on behalf of God. He also represents them in the ways in which he helps them to understand the sins of their ways, the error of who they were. And he also, he happens to have some of, among all of the prophets, Ezekiel has some of the most clear and identifiable historical data. His, his dates seem to be more accurate than some of the others, and we can identify them alongside of extra-biblical sources. And so, we have fun when we read Ezekiel, even though he's not the most common of the prophets read, right? If I were to take a show of hands, which I'm not going to do, how many people read Ezekiel? My hunch is a lot more of us read Isaiah and Jeremiah and even Daniel. But Ezekiel has some of the most phenomenal stories and understandings of God's Word. He has, in fact, unlike any of the other prophets, Ezekiel has the most visions, he has the most oracles, these presentations of God, and he has the most common of the, what are known as sign acts, where he sort of represents what he's trying to say in a tangible way. In fact, when you read Ezekiel, as some of you know, have, have I know, uh, you, you almost feel like he's kind of, I don't know, smoking something, right? Because he just, when you read him, it, it, it's very vivid, it's very imaginative, it's very sort of um, beyond any kind of reality. And so as you read Ezekiel, you often have to go back and read it a second and a third and a fourth time because it doesn't always make sense and it certainly doesn't seem to follow a straight path. It seems to go here and there. But we're going to have some fun today in the prophet Ezekiel. But because he does these synacts, I want to spend just a, a hang a hat here just for a minute on uh, synacts. These are nonverbal ways that um, uh, um, prophets use to kind of make their point. They're almost like visual aids. They're extra ways that they kind of convey their message. So one of the ways that the prophets do it is by um, going through actions 
or demonstrating behavior that represents what they're trying to express, how they're trying to communicate. I'll give you just a couple of examples. In the prophet Isaiah, for instance, in the 20th chapter, it says this, Then the Lord said, Isaiah, my servant, was walking around naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia. The king of Assyria will carry away prisoners from Egypt and Ethiopia. Old people and young people will be led away naked and barefoot with their buttocks bare, so the Egyptians will be shamed. Well, there you go, friends, right? I mean, that's a sign act. Isaiah is literally walking around naked and barefoot in order to demonstrate that the Egyptians and the Ethiopians are going to have a hard time and that they're not going to um, get all the things that they want to get. And so a sign act is a way for the prophet to s- literally demonstrate what's going wrong. Another example, not in a book of prophecy, but a prophet nonetheless. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Ahijah is a prophet in Shiloh, an old uh, religious community. Ahijah tore his new garment into 12 pieces He said to Jeroboam, take ten pieces, because Israel's God, the Lord, has said, look, I am about to tear the kingdom of Solomon's hand. I will give you ten tribes. So the sign act is he tears his shirt apart, he rips it into twelve pieces, he hands off ten and says, this is to demonstrate God's going to establish ten tribes of Israel or ten tribes, right? And so uh, a sign act is a demonstrative, demonstrative way to better understand what the prophet is trying to say. In Ezekiel chapter 4, where we find ourselves today, Ezekiel is using a sign act to help inform us of his um, information to the Israelite nation, to try to help us better understand the purposes of of why he's communicating to them. I share all that because when we read Ezekiel chapter 4, you're going to think to yourself, what in the world are we reading? And what is this all about? Well, it's about better knowing the consequences of sin and the ways in which God has uh, in play, in, in, import in all of that. So uh, follow along with me. Today I'm going to be reading from the message rendering of Scripture. Some of you know the message. It's a modern translation. It actually is a translation. You know, uh, translation happens in one of two primary forms. One is word for word from the original Hebrew or from the original Greek into the next language from which we translate. Or another form of translation is thought for thought. The actual thought, purpose, intent behind the word or the phrase uh, is what uh, the message does. And when we get to some of these harder texts, it's sometimes easier to read from the message. So I'm going to read from it today. Ezekiel chapter 4, the first three verses will set up for us an understanding of what Ezekiel is trying to communicate. And no, just like all good prophets, Ezekiel is trying to help the hearers understand you've messed up and you need to figure out how to move forward, right? So here's how it begins. Now God speaks to Ezekiel. Now, son of man, take a brick and place it before you. Draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem on it. Then make a model of a military siege against the brick. Build siege walls, construct a ramp, set up army camps, lay in battering rams around it. You get the picture? He's drawing on a brick, and the brick is going to represent a war. The the community of Israel, the community of Jerusalem, in fact, is going to be overthrown by the Babylonian king. So a part of the Babylonian exile that... um, Ezekiel and the Israelites went into was that once they went away, uh, the king came back and he destroyed Israel, right? So this is a picture of that. 
Then he says, then get an iron skillet and place it upright between you and the city, an iron wall. Face the model. The city shall be under siege and you shall be the besieger. This is a sign to the family of Israel. Okay, so we just pause here and go, uh, he's setting up an image of what war looks like. He's helping us to acknowledge that Jerusalem is about to come under pressure. They're going to be at war, and the, the king of Babylon is going to destroy them. And so he wants him to draw a picture of it all, right? Uh, what, what, what's that old saying? A picture's worth a thousand words, right? And so he's trying to help communicate that you are going to be destroyed. It will not be pleasant. It won't be easy. It clearly won't be simple. And guess what? You will not enjoy it. So he sets up a very clear image, right? And oh, by the way, the reason they're going to be under siege is because they've been sinful. The reason that God is going to allow the Babylonian king to come conquer them is because they've not been following God's ways. They, they are suffering the consequences of their sin, right? Let's continue, verses 4 through 8. Next, God says to Ezekiel, he's communicating to the prophet, next, lie on your left side and place the sin of the family of Israel on yourself. You will bear their sin for as many days as you lie on your side. The number of days you bear their sin will match the number of years of their sin, namely 390. For 390 days, you will bear the sin of the family of Israel. Wow. So, a part of the sign act is not only he's going to lie down on his left side, and he's going to lie prostrate for 390 days. Sounds real simple, real easy, right? 390 days. But he's also taking on the sin of Israel. This is the Sinai. Um, Ezekiel is taking on all of the errors of their ways. He's, he's sort of becoming the scapegoat, right? In the Old Testament, that was the, the priest took on the sin, and then they put on the sin on the, on the goat and then sent the goat out, right? The scapegoat. This is what he's doing is taking that on. Then, after you've done this, turn over and lie down on your right side and bear the sin of the family of Judah. I just want to pause. We all know there's a, two kingdoms, right? A northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. They're no longer unified as they had been under David and Saul and Solomon. They've now been divided, and the northern kingdom is Israel and the southern kingdom is Judah. And so we continue, your assignment this time is to lie there for 40 days, a day for each year of their sin. We're up to 430 days lying on either the left side or the right side. Do you, do you toss and turn at night? I know I do. He's not allowed to toss or turn. He's not allowed to move from left to right. He's not allowed to get up and walk and lay down 390 and then lay down on the right side 40 days. Look straight at the siege of Jerusalem, God says. Roll up your sleeve, shake your bare arm, and preach against her. I will tie you up with ropes, tie you so you can't move or turn over until you have finished the days of the siege. They're at war. Jerusalem is being conquered. And Ezekiel is being asked to lie prostrate, 390 and 40. And a part of what we have to understand is that the sin of Israel and Judah has been multifaceted for centuries at this point. 
And God is pretty fed up, and that's why the Babylonian exile is uh, uh, identified by God and why the siege is created by God is because these are the consequences of our sin. Now, I, I can't enumerate all of the sins of Israel because, man, they're, they're a bunch. They're many. But we could sort of lump them into two really prime categories. One is idolatry. I'm going to look at these gods a little more. I'm going to follow these gods a little better. I'm, I'm going to kind of check out what's over here because every once in a while that looks a little better. Idolatry. And then the other primary sin is what we would call injustice, not taking care of our neighbor, not loving our neighbor, uh, not providing for the needy, not being with the widows and the orphans, injustice and ratifying that and, and becoming a part of that. You know, it's easy for us when we read Hebrew Scripture to start pointing fingers, isn't it? Man, they messed up. They, did, they never got it right. In fact, over and over again, for centuries, they never got it right. And it's real easy to just keep pointing at the Hebrew people as if somehow we're not like them. I just want to suggest, friends, we are just like them, right? It is true that they messed up over and over again. It is true that God fed up with them, that God got fed up with them and, and caused this siege from Babylon. But it's also true that we have those two primary forms of sin ourselves, idolatry. And you, and you say to yourself, well, I don't follow a foreign god. I don't put up a graven image. Yeah, we do. We do it all the time. We put it in front of us, whether it's our work or, or sometimes our family or sometimes material wealth or sometimes prestige or even sometimes our nation. We put things before God. And that's called idolatry. Anytime we choose to follow, spend more energy and effort with something or someone more than God, that's idolatry. And it is a great huge error and sin in all of our lives. We don't intend to do it. We don't set out to do it. But we do it all the time. And by golly, we're as guilty as anybody else about injustice and about not caring for the needy and not, not giving ourselves over to those who need God's help and to serve those who are in desperate need, right? We sometimes cause or add to the injustices in the world. And mind you, I don't think any of us, myself included, do this intentionally. We don't set out to make that happen. But often, because we get so consumed by our own desires, our own schedules, our own wants, we we completely ignore or neglect or look away or don't look toward, right? And so part of what Ezekiel is pointing out to the Israelites, we also need to claim for ourselves and realize that his lying prostrate for 390 days and 40 days is, is for us, just like it is for the Israelites. Now, numbers in the Old Testament, numbers in the Bible really are a fascinating deal. Sometimes they're very right on and they make perfect sense and that's why that is. And sometimes they clearly point us towards something and every once in a while they, they don't point us towards anything. They're just numbers there, right? And the 390 and the 40 are fascinating. Scholars vary a little bit on the 390. Some scholars say it's about the time that they were in the Babylonian exile and the time that they were pushed out. Others say that, no, it actually started with Solomon because Solomon, who built the temple for God, also left God for idolatry and for injustices, right? And so some scholars say the 390 is the 390 years from Solomon's sin until this point. I'm not real sure, but it's clear it's going to be a long time and he needs to take it on and realize the error of all of our sin. 
The 40 is a little more straightforward, right? We know 40 in the Scriptures has very clear intention. In this case, the, the, the sins of Judah caused them to be in exile for 40 years in the Babylonian captivity, right? We also know that the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years going towards the Exodus. We know Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, right? We, part of what we know is 40 means a long time. And you need to realize that war is long and arduous and difficult. And that's what these numbers represent. They represent that he's taking on this difficult scenario. Well, it gets even better. I mean, this is relatively straightforward. There's going to be a war. You need to lie prostrate. You need to demonstrate that all this is going to happen. But then it gets even more interesting. Uh, I'm sorry. The last thing is those two numbers combined, 390 and 40, that adds up to 430, right? 430, we're told in Exodus chapter 12, was the number of years that the Israelites were in Egypt in slavery and bondage. So there's just yet one more tie to this whole concept of the 390 and the 40. But here's where it gets really interesting. In verse 9, so God is talking to Ezekiel and He says this, next, I want you to take wheat and barley, beans and lentil, dried millet and spelt, and mix them in a bowl to make a flat bread. This is your food ration for the 390 days you lie on your side. Measure out about half a pound for each day and eat it on schedule. Also measure out your daily ration of about a pint of water and drink it on schedule. Eat the bread as you would a muffin. Bake the muffins out in the open where everyone can see you using dried human dung for fuel. That doesn't sound appealing at all, does it? I mean, not only the mixture of the grains and the stuff, but, but there's that, that human dung thing. I mean, anybody here ever, ever cooked with human dung? I hope not, right? I mean, that's nasty. I mean, you just read it and you think, that's nasty. There's something wrong here. There's something not right about this. And, and you would be accurate. There's clearly something not right about what's going on here. And what's going on here is a description of wartime rations. Now, I know none of us here are old enough to have experienced the rations of World War II, but this country and all of Europe was on rations because stuff was not readily available, right? And so when there's war, there's devastation. And not only is there devastation, but there's not enough food or water or even sometimes clothing or other forms of resources, right? If you think that there's a supply chain issue right now, just think about what it was like during World War II. This is an image of that. And this is what's happening in Israel. There's a war going on. There's a major siege happening. And therefore, you're not going to have enough food. You're not going to have enough water. And it, it is a clear image that everything has gone wrong. And that's what God is saying to Ezekiel about what's going to happen to Israel and Judah. It does not look good. It will not taste good. It will not feel good. And you will be rationed. Now, you know, when we cook bread, we kind of think that um, multigrain is the best thing there is, right? We, we're told that's the healthiest stuff. But when we hear about all these different grains, wheat, barley, beans, lentil, dried millet, and spelt, what that means is there's not enough. There's not enough of any one of those things to make a loaf of bread. Notice it's a flat bread because there's not going to be anything else to help make it rise. This is a clear indication that war is heck and nothing is going well. And then, guess what? 
as if that weren't bad enough, let me just tell you, you're going to have to heat everything and cook everything on human excrement. That's not any good, right? God said, this is what the people of Israel are going to do among the pagan nations where I will drive them. They will eat foods that are strictly taboo to a holy people. This is the only time Ezekiel speaks. Ezekiel says, God, my master, never. I've never contaminated myself with food like that. Since my youth, I've never eaten anything forbidden by law, nothing found dead or violated by wild animals. I've never taken a single bite of forbidden food. He's pleading, right? He's seeking God's mercy. He's desiring in the midst of a horrible atrocity, God's grace. And so God responds, all right, God said, I'll let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human dung. Oh, okay. That'll be much better, right? Has anybody cooked with cow dung? I have. Yeah, there were a few people in the 930 who had. If ever you've been a Boy Scout, you've likely cooked with cow dung. I mean, come on, you're out in the, in the woods or you're out in the field and there's no, there's no wood anywhere. Man, there's nothing better than a hard, dried-up cow patty because, after all, it's just regurgitated grass. That's all it is. This will be all right, right? Actually, it'll be much better than human dung, right? Because we eat nasty stuff and just it doesn't go well. So we're going to cook with cow dung and it's going to be much better. The point <laughs> is war is hell. It isn't pleasing and it's all because of the consequences of our sin, the error of our ways. Then he said to me, God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, I'm going to cut off all the food from Jerusalem. The people will live on starvation rations, worrying where the next meal is coming from, scrounging for the next drink of water, famine conditions. People will look at one another, see nothing but skin and bones, and shake their heads. And here it is, friends. This is what sin does. The last verse of the chapter. This is what sin does. Because here's the reality of Ezekiel's sign act for us. There are consequences to sin. It's ugly. It's brutal. And what we sometimes forget in the midst of our sin is our sin, whatever our sin is, is not just ours. It has impact. It has um, ripples. It concerns others as well. If I have the sin of lust, it ain't just me that I'm, that's sinning, right? If I have the sin of pride, it impacts not just me, but anybody who encounters me. If I have the sin of greed, it's not just me who wants to take, 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 but it has impact on the people in my life, right? If I'm gluttonous, it's not just me gaining weight, but it's others who might not get the things that I'm consuming, Right? If I have wrath or, or envy, often there is war. You see, sin has consequences and import not just on us individually, but also corporately. And a part of what the Israelites learned and discovered through Ezekiel and other prophets is that those consequences have greater impact on more than just any one person. And a part of what Ezekiel is saying to them is, recognize your sin, acknowledge your sin, and realize there will be 
consequences. Now, friends, this is the bad news. This is the news that got every prophet in trouble, right? Prophets always told people, you're sinning, you're error, you're doing wrong, you need to get your stuff together and follow God, right? It's what got several of the prophets killed. Nobody wants to hear that. Do you want to hear that you're a sinner? Not really. I don't. And yet, I need it. I need to know. I need to understand that I'm a sinner, and I need to understand that my sin, my personal sin, also has impact on other people's lives. That's what war is, friends. It's people's pride and envy and and arrogance having impact on other people, right? Sin causes consternation for many. And all Ezekiel is doing is painting that portrait for the Israelite nation, for the Babylonian exile, and for what it will have impact on their lives. That's the bad news. The good news, we follow a God who claims us in the midst of our sin and offers us hope. We follow a Christ, our Lord, who gives us a second and a third and a fourth chance and and sees right through us and knows the error of our ways and loves us just the same. Even Ezekiel understood this. Most of the prophets would often get to good news. They they wouldn't stop at the bad news. They, They always presented the bad news, but they often presented the good news as well. You just go a few chapters later in Ezekiel, and you hear this powerful good news in chapter 11. He says, and I will give them a singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people, and I will be their God. You see, a part of what we claim is a recognition that we miss the mark sometimes, that we will not do God's will sometimes, that we will uh, cause bad things. We need to own that. We need to recognize that. And we need to realize that we have a risen Savior and that we have a gift found in Christ and that we can find new life to offer hope to the world. You see, it's a both and, friends. We are both sinners and we can be redeemed by a loving God. And a part of the gift that we need to claim that Isaiah, that Jeremiah, that yes, even Ezekiel claimed was that in the midst of our sin, we need to be prepared for the consequences, but we also need to know that God has a door through which we can enter to experience for ourselves hope and to share with the world grace and to help people know that they can be loved. You see, if you continue to read in the book of Ezekiel, you come to chapter 37, and there's a powerful image there of a valley of dry bones. And in that valley of dry bones, the Holy Spirit descends and brings new life. That is our hope. That is our end goal, friends. There will be a valley of dry bones in all of our lives at some point in our lives And there will be the breath of God that descends upon our hearts and our lives and gives new life. May it be so for you. May it be so for us. And may it be so for God's world that we might experience that gift of new hope and new life every single day. This is God's desire. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the powerful and impactful words of Ezekiel. 
for His sign act that claims for us this realization that we miss the mark sometimes, God, and we don't do Your will. Help us to acknowledge that, Lord, and at the same time, help us to breathe in Your Spirit, O Lord, that we might know new life and that we might breathe in Your power and that we might breathe out Your hope. May this be so this day and the next, God, that we might offer Your good news to a hurting world. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen. Friends, let me offer my gratitude to you for your generosity. Your generosity makes this hope possible. Every single day, every single week, every single month, your generosity offers hope to a hurting world. Thank you for making that so. If you brought a gift with you today, we're grateful, and you can place it in the brown boxes at the white posts right outside the door. Or, of course, you can take your phone and scan the QR code that's on the screen, or you can text the letters T-M-U-M-C to the number 45777. But whatever you give, we are grateful. Thank you.